Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby. And on this week's episode of Over the Line, we focus... Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. And I'm your host, Steve Doby. On this week's episode, our... Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and on this week's episode of Over the Line, we talk to Tacoma Zach of Mentor APM and Uber Analytics. We discuss failure modes, operating context, asset management, and a whole lot of other things. It was a really good conversation, really great to meet Tacoma, and really excited for you all to listen to this episode. Before we jump into the episode, just a quick message about our upcoming Maintenance Mastermind. Hello, this is Steve Doby, and I want to tell you about our upcoming Maintenance Mastermind, Mobile Equipment Edition. In this mastermind, we have five experts covering six topics over 12 weeks focused around mobile equipment and the people who maintain these assets. Each topic will have a training video, an interactive workshop, and a group assignment which we'll review in another workshop. Joining our mastermind session, you will learn how to manage your mobile assets better, you will connect with experts in your field, and meet others in the mobile maintenance field that can help support you for many years into your career. This training is for everybody, maintenance managers, engineers, planners, technicians, anybody involved with maintenance on mobile assets would be a great fit for this course. Registration is $1,500 plus tax, and if you are a student or unemployed, please reach out and we'll work together to make sure that you can still attend this course. For more information, go to our website at www.maintenancedisrupted.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today I'm welcoming Tacoma Zach. So thanks for joining the show. Uh, why don't you, before we jump into our, today's conversation, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where, you, where you've been, where you're going, and everything in between. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, well, I'll try and give the, uh, the abridged version of this thing. I was going to say Reader's Digest version, but that definitely uh, that definitely ages me. So there's probably a lot of folks that don't even know what that is. So, uh, anyways, yeah. So spent my the entirety of my career. You know, I don't really count the first couple of years, um, but I spent the entirety of my career pretty well in uh, water, wastewater, industrial space, uh, municipal and industrial space. Uh, first in operations related stuff, and then through a series of acquisitions, ended up through uh, eventually working for the company some have heard of, Veolia. And um, so did a stint overseas for a while as well, really enjoyed that, came back to North America and um, um, pretty well looked after the, the West in various capacities. So one of my stints was uh, where I was running the, the business for them on the industrial side in the West. So all the oil refineries, industrial projects, uh, all related to water business, um, they were part of my portfolio. Prior to that, I was doing you know, kind of a mix of things, both municipal and industrial. And then um, in the intervening periods, you know, I started a, an engineering company, operations-based engineering company. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, but eventually the company, you know, the, in it, going back and forth, I should say, you know, the company said, hey, come and run the business for us in the West. So we did that. In the meantime, one of my great friends uh, within the company, who I really, really grew to appreciate uh, uh, as a friend and intellectually and also in his character, 
was the guy who was sort of pretty, the director for asset management in the West. And this goes back to the early 2000s. And we as a company had made a decision because we were looking after so many assets, so many customers. Um, and we had these uh, rigorous requirements to hand assets back after quite a bit of time in like or as good condition. So the notion of asset management and best practices and maintenance really became uh, important for us. So we kind of looked around the world and well, actually he, he did really well and you know, did that and looked at RCM, looked at the, um, uh, the International Infrastructure Maintenance Manual from uh, Australia, looked at past 55 and we sort of cleared the decks and said, all right, look, this is how we're gonna approach our business. And um, really put a, 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 the nascent plan and nascent pieces in place that um, really ended up building out uh, some fabulous results for us, uh, P&L in the West, um, both in terms of contracts, and then, but it, particularly in terms of uh, the performance. So more stable maintenance budgets, lower maintenance budgets, uh, fewer NOVs and environmental excursions, et cetera. So began to see the massive value that asset management um, in its, uh, um, well-articulated form uh, and well-implemented form into a, a business could really have on, um, on, on, a, on a, both the client's side of the fence as well as on a business side of the fence. So back in, uh, oh, let's see, what is it, 20, end of 2012, beginning of 2013, uh, I left again about this time to go take over uh, the company that uh, my friend had started up, that he had left the company a few years earlier that focused on the unique approach that we apply to understanding our asset portfolios, risk and criticality. And so when you look at, when you look at uh, in fact, one, somebody else within the company had said, look, you can't really start an asset management program unless you understand how critical your assets are. So we did a lot of work on really trying to understand the difference between risk and criticality, what uh, the different standards, the ISO standard said. And, um, and then, uh, so fast forward, so we built a real nice business out of that, bringing that, those learnings and stuff to customers. And really, we wrote a book as well uh, on how to make uh, criticality analysis simple. In fact, I think that's the name of the title, Criticality Analysis Made Simple, published by Reliability Web. And, um, and then in 2016, we were looking at saying, you know, there isn't any commercial off-the-shelf software that allows us to do what, what we always wanted to do as um, people who held a P&L. Uh, but we're really keen and interested in doing asset management and doing it correctly and looking at asset performance and maintenance practices and saying, how do we, how do we, um, how do we coordinate this effort? How do we have a tool in, inside the company that really sort of pulls it all together? So in 2017, we, uh, I, I took a, another business partner of I, we, we started, John Klo, we started another company called Mentor APM, which um, we believe is, we think it's the best CMMS asset performance management software out there that really embodies asset management. Um, our task is, is to get other people to believe that too. So that kind of takes it full circle. So there was a lot of time spent actually in the field. I, I cut my teeth on actually physically building pilot plants and plants and operating them and living with what we built. And then eventually sort of, you know, went up through the ranks and eventually here we are, here's where I sit. Yeah, that, that's excellent. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Uh, I think that puts a lot of context around around everything you're working on. And uh, I'll, I'll make sure um, if people are looking for you, I'll put the link to uh, Mentor APM into the podcast description. Um, so your, uh, you and your wife uh, are running Mentor APM. Uh, is that correct? 
Well, John, I, the, the, uh, the primary ownership is between John Clo and myself, and John Clo has um, a, an excellent uh, integration business, uh, PSA Process Solutions Assurance. And um, we got to know each other for uh, you know, a number of years ago and had always thought we could do some really, really good work together. Um, Jen uh, runs the marketing department uh, for both Uberlytics as well as uh, Mentor APM since um some of the work that would be really valuable to do in a municipal or industrial context involves criticality analysis but all the software resides in mentor so that's that's the ownership is kind of split between there's there's two minority partners uh um jen and um and a guy named Katen. yeah for sure so um I, I was talking to with her before i got you on the show here and she sent me one of your quotes and i, I oh, really boy. love this quote um <laughs> An asset is a collection of failure modes. Manage the failure modes and you manage the asset. Now, this is really where I, I at least want to start our conversation today. As we sure. know, we, we generally go in multiple different directions. But sure. um, so when we're talking about our failure modes and if you can manage those, you manage the assets. Yeah. What, you know, what are your thoughts? Because there's a lot of different schools on thoughts on, on what a failure mode is. Is it just this high level doesn't really tell you anything is it this detailed <laughs> we know the bits like how many hours have we got <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's just start with what is a failure mode it you know it's a reliability and maintenance podcast so everybody that's listening has a has an idea and yeah. i'm always curious to see if our ideas actually match sure each other. sure so <laughs> sure no no i uh no this is actually really um uh, something that we've given a lot of consideration to and the, the reason is is that because um, it is a little bit, um, I don't want to say nebulous or nondescript. So, you know, we're, um, we're also friends with and fans of you know, the Alanon network. And so Marius and I, we've, we've had chats about this kind of stuff as well. And some other folks who are, I would consider them sort of the, the sages in RCM and, and that sort of thing in maintenance. And I don't uh, presume to uh, put myself in that same, same category. Um, although I will say, I think we know quite a bit about risk and criticality. But um, so when I look at a failure mode, um, when you think about it, an asset is built uh, out of the components it's built, the design it's built, the materials that were selected, and each of those has ways that it can fail. So, you know, if you've got two identical pumps, but with slightly different materials chosen, there may or may not be uh, a failure mode that resides in, 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 in a, one of those pumps that doesn't reside in the other one because of a materials choice. So, but when you talk about what is a failure mode, I mean, we've seen everything out there from like, it broke. Well, that's not really a failure mode. That's a, that's a state, that's a condition, so to speak. You know, it's busted. Um, but then some will say, well, you know, we had a bearing failure. Well, all right, now we're getting closer. Um, but what really busted in the bearing? Was, was it that the, the oil had water in it? Was it because uh, there was some particulates in it? Uh, was it because there was another foreign material in the oil or perhaps it was the wrong kind of oil that ended up promoting corrosion? or it didn't do its job properly, so you had pitting, or there was a manufacturing defect where there were little micro pits that then eventually grew and you know, that sort of thing and built on one another. So you know, when, when, we, when we think about what is an honest to goodness, legitimate foundational at the rock bottom, you can't go any further failure mode, it's probably something like erosion, corrosion, um, nuclear degradation, um, thermal degradation, something at the asset or sorry at the uh, at atomic or um, elemental level but most people don't talk that way 
And, you know, failure modes need to be accessible um, to the people in the field. They need to be in, uh, accessible. By that, I mean that you have to be able to understand them. They have to be able to relate to them. They have, so we have to put human, or in our context, English language, but whatever language you're using, you have to put human language against it. So when someone says, well, you know, we had a bearing failure, you're getting close. And maybe, you know, the better thing is, well, we had a bearing failure and the root cause was, um, you know, oil had water in it. Okay. You know, sorry, go ahead, inter interject, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, I think, the, and this is where the, I think a lot of the conversations start to break down and the confusion feeds in is, okay, you've got your failure mode, you've got your root causes, you've got your, um, or at the very least, the physical root cause, and you've got, you know, uh, and like other standards, like ISO 14.224 throws yep. in failure mechanisms. And so how are all these things fitting together to build that, to build that story of your asset? Yeah, you know, excellent question. Um, unfortunately, I don't think there's one ring to rule them all yet. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, the, the work is uh, moving forward. And I think there's more and more good stuff being, you know, written out there. Um, uh, Marius, uh, Marius has actually written a new one, RCM3, which I think, you know, it capitalizes a little bit on that, but the focus is a little bit more towards, you know, doing uh, criticality on it, which I think is a, is, a, is a wise move overall. But, you know, when, when you look at the, the, the confluence between or the world between um, root cause and failure mode, I mean, it's failure mode, when you think about it, is something that says, okay, here is a, here's an asset that's made up of components. The components have design in them. They've got material selection. Something in them failed. So we could, you know, we're getting close into what a real failure mode is. The root cause tells you why it failed. So I guess I look at it this way. If you have a bearing that fails, and let's say the bearing failure is because of um, poor lubrication. Well, okay, if you selected the right lube, but you didn't put it in there, then the root cause is some sort of operator or in a, you just didn't take care of it properly. So you didn't get the right amount of lubrication in there. So you ended up causing some sort of material degradation. So in one sense, the failure mode is some sort of material degradation. The root cause is you didn't put oil in it or grease in it or whatever, or you put the wrong one in or you let water get into it, right? So it is really kind of, it gets, it's actually very complicated and it is complicated in the sense that everybody seems to have a, an opinion on it. Maybe it would be good to have a standard out there that sort of articulates these things. Um, you know, you mentioned 14224, but I'm going to pause here and let you, let you, because we're supposed to be having a, a hey, beverage oh. over this thing in, in the pub, <laughs> right? Yeah. It, well, it's, you know, and I guess, I guess the question is, and maybe this is not going to be a popular question or, or, um, but how, how important is that distinction? Like, does it, does it matter? Do we need a standard or as long as it's defined within an organization, that's good enough. And as long as we have those processes built within an organization, like it's not great when you go to an organization and they say, this is a failure mode. This is, and you know, it's, you know, pump broke. That's well, that's not helpful. That doesn't, right. that doesn't narrow the focus at all. How do we, you know, what I guess was really important and what we're trying to get out of these failure modes mechanisms is how do we narrow the focus to, to manage those and, or, or get to a level of resolution where we can mm -hmm. manage those enough. Um, and, and so it's how much detail is too much detail, I think is where, where the question lies. And if you're um, working for a mining industry like me, you know, we don't need to go into, well, this engine failed because 
um, you know, we had this particular seal um, eroded away. Like, is that really important for us? The, the thing that's important is, okay, we know we had a failure in this general location and this is what we see. But if you're the engine manufacturer, well, that's that deeper level is far more important. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on yeah, that. Yeah, you know what? Actually, I think you're, you're, you're touching on something there. There's a, there's a couple of things. And so let me touch on this and then we backtrack for a second. So I think in one sense, you know, the, the, the degree of impact uh, that that failure has and the, the, the number of, of failures like that, I think will sort of say, hey, do we need to drill down further in this area or not? Maybe we've got a wrong material selection. Maybe, we're, maybe we shouldn't be driving this thing over into such a dusty environment or, you know, whatever it is. So, but I think that the notion of the degree of granularity is extremely important to the nature of the industry that you're, you're, you're dealing with. And, um, you know, if, if, if good enough is good enough, then, then let it be good enough. So if it's good enough to say, hey, we had a bearing failure because of the greasing, and if that's sufficient, then someone say, well, someone else might say, well, is it because we didn't grease it properly or is it because we got water in it? That's probably enough to know to prevent it from happening next time if you if you do something about it. But it's touching on the other notion, and that is is driving to action. And that is, you know, a lot of this data is useful if and is valuable if you end up using it and driving to action. If you collect all this stuff and it sits on the shelf and nobody's changing what they're doing in the field, then what's the point? You know, I mean, it's so so that's one of the things we struggled with. So when we, in fact, when we, when we created uh, Mentor IPM and when we did our own programs within when we were at Veolia and with other customers this night, one of the things we looked at and said is, okay, look, engineer wants to know everything out, you know, out the wazoo kind of thing and would love to have data, 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 data. But if you do that to someone in the field, you're going to get garbage back because you're just going to overwhelm them. Like if you give them a long list of failure modes without curating those failure modes to say, hey, wait a second, you're dealing with a pump. And you're dealing with rotational aspects. So I'm going to give you these five failure modes that apply here. Then you might actually get some useful information back. If you don't give them enough information to just say, well, tell me what happened. You're going to get free form and you're going to get it broke. And that's not useful either. So that, that, that interplay between what's enough to be useful, what's not too much so that it doesn't overwhelm, really, uh, we have found kind of depends on the industry, the length of time that people have been there, the... Um, how do, how do I say this? Well, if you work for Intel, you probably have to have a very high degree of education if you're going to look after their clean rooms. That's not necessary in very specialized education. That's not necessarily a value added if you're a guy out there cranking a valve at a sewage plant. You know, you can get by with and do a great job with less uh, specialized formal education. So you kind of have to look at who are the people that you're dealing with. I mean, if you're going to go to NASA and look after rockets, you know, you probably need a PhD just to draw, you know, don the door, so to speak, um, or be a hyper-specialized individual. So the notion of granularity, I think, is important, that it's useful, that it's accessible to the people that you are asking to use either the software or gather the information from. But then when you go back again, you know, I never actually answered the question about a failure mode as a collection or an asset as a collection of failure modes. <laughs> But I think this is, where, this is where the management comes in, into it in terms of the granularity. And if you say, look, I know that an asset's gonna fail in five, six potential ways, make up the number here, let's say it's six potential ways. Then um, you would say, I gotta cancel the call here, six potential ways. You say, okay, cool. 
asset. I know I've got these six things that can go wrong. So I, what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to put some plans in place, some PMs that are going to address those failure modes so I can either sense that they're happening sooner uh, so that they don't fail, or at least that I can plan for the outage. Um, and also to see, okay, what kind of PMs am I doing that actually do they really address the kind of failure mode? But the, but the thing is, is that uh, some of those failure modes will, will rise to the top sooner than others, depending on quality of the construction, but also the context that asset finds itself in. So if you can figure out and say, hey, I got a lot of stop starts, so I better do some things and manage the failure modes that relate to stop starts versus I'm trying to push sand through a pump because there's a bunch of you know junk in the water and it's really gritty and I'm going to have erosion going on. Well, then there are failure modes there that you probably need to be looking for. And so that's what we mean by we say, look, understand what an asset is, is built like, understand the context it's in, know what failure modes are applicable, know which ones will rise to the top based on the context, because those will be the ones that dominate, and try to do something to sense those failures ahead of time and intervene appropriately. And that's, why we, that's what we mean when we say, hey, an asset's a collection of failure modes. If you manage the failure modes, you're managing the asset. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that operating context is, is such a huge point that we often miss because it's, you know, it's, uh, you, you get your new asset, you get your pump, mm -hmm. your, your supplier sold you on, hey, it's going to last this long, it's going to provide this output. And then all of a sudden you look at it and you start running it and it, it doesn't last that long. Well, and then you ask yourself, okay, why am I different from everybody else? And you know, the answer is, you know, usually most of the things are, are tested with just water. Um, yep. And, and so you have to adjust your expectations, but so few of us actually put those expectations because so many of us aren't actually involved in that asset acquisition process. Mm -hmm. And so um, we get whatever asset we get and we have to deal with it. We have to maintain it. And, and we never go through that back step or, or, you know, if you're lucky enough to, to do an RCM proactively before you start, and I, I laugh when as I say proactively, because RCM should be a proactive step, but so many organizations where, you know, we're in legacy facilities that have been around for 40 years, and we're doing an RCM now on what's already in place. And it's, it's, it's an interesting, interesting kind of world to, to manage the assets that were chosen for you and, and go from there. So we recently had somebody on that was kind of part of that commissioning and startup phase and yep his uh, his story was uh, a lot different than many others we hear that just inherit that equipment and so when you're managing a facility or trying to manage a facility that you've just inherited like there's there's a lot of big challenges and a lot of us are are overwhelmed with the amount of stuff so what how do you go about that like yeah you come to a new facility and you look at the place and everything's reactive. Like, what is your first instinct? How, where do you start tackling those issues? Where do you start? What failure modes do you start looking at uh, to build strategies to make meaningful improvements? Sure. Uh, no, that's, that's actually a, um, a, a very large question. In fact, that's something <laughs> that we faced often. So I'd say there's actually a kind of a multi-pronged approach. The first thing we always do, and, and if we're talking about in the context of asset management, which is an overarching coordinated approach um, to, to derive value from the assets, you gotta make risk-based decisions. 
So the first thing we always do is say, okay, um, which ones are your most critical assets? Which ones aren't? And if they don't have a very good solid foundation in that, we always recommend that they do one and that they do one in a, in a way that's very quick, very meaningful. We happen to have that approach, but that's beside the point. So our, our thing is always like, first off, you've got to understand where your most critical assets are. Second of all, we also think that, you know, RCM is an extremely valuable exercise, but to be honest, we always look at things from a return on investment perspective. So a criticality analysis, and then ends up becoming a risk, you know, giving you risk uh, information um, is kind of the, found, we look at it as, as the foundation of any kind of asset management plan. And the reason is, is because it prioritizes your, your efforts. It prioritizes where then you should do an RCM, where then you should do a condition assessment, where then you should first, you know, and where then you should actually spend the money on ongoing condition monitoring. The second th thing after that is that when you finally, you know, when you understand, okay, wh where are my most critical assets? Then I would say, yeah, take a look at the failure modes, look at the work history, look at stuff that's been going on and see if you can find any common patterns. Um, you know, to, I'll, I'll say this, a pump is a pump is a pump. <laughs> Meaning, you know, it's gonna, if you, if you have a Grunfoss pump and it's the same design, it doesn't matter where it is, the failure modes are all the same. What's gonna be different is, you're up in Alberta, right? Uh, yeah, or BC. Calgary. B oh, up in British Columbia, okay, yeah. okay, cool. Um, how cold does it get in the winter there? Oh, minus 30. Okay. Well, I'm in Arizona. So we're <laughs> the other end of the, you know, we're, we're, at the, we're at the gateway to Hades down here. So our asset experience is going to be different. We might get down to, you know, freezing temperatures once in a while in the winter. But generally speaking, our assets run at extremely high temperatures. You guys have freeze thaws and, and, and freezes. I remember when we worked at uh, Chrysler up in, uh, in the Toronto area, we had lines that would basically the first winter, you know, it was a new design, blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, you got a sodium hydroxide line that's, you know, split and is spilling hydroxide everywhere. So, you know, you look at that and you go, oh, okay, now we have to, you know, fix that thing. So one, there was a failure mode that wasn't thought about. Two, the context was not thought of. And it's the same asset. It's the same kind of pipe anywhere else. The trouble is, is that if the context is different, if you're going to have freezes or you're going to have high temperatures or you're going to have stop starts, those are the things which are going to tell you which failure modes are going to distill to the top. And those are the ones you probably have to pay attention to. But we always, I got to be honest, to us, that's a, I want to say it's secondary. That's the next step. The first step for us is always figure out where your critical assets are and then look at how often they have failed. Because then that's going to give you the snapshot as of sort of today about where your risk is. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, to keep your business afloat, you need to address risk. And you've got to spend um, resources on mitigating that risk. Um, it, it, to be honest, like if you drive down the highway and you've got old cracked tires, there's a huge risk there. If you don't spend the effort on those tires and put something new on them, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a, a potentially a fatal accident. You know. So when we look at that and you say, like, if you figure out what the risk to your business is, that's where you spend your efforts first. And RCM is a fabulous tool. Failure modes are the way to you know to, to get down to that figuring out what's the smartest thing to do to that asset to keep it running. Assuming yeah. it's cost effective to keep running. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny. I was um, the cold weather one's always always a good point of conversation for operating context because it's it's so variable around the world. And oh, yeah. um, like it's I was just having a conversation about uh, electric cars and we were talking about the applicability in, in Canada with the cold weather versus you know other countries in the world where they don't have the the cold weather to continue with. Because 
um, the life that you see, or at least the the charge that it holds, yep, uh, and range availability is is much different. So, like me living in Sparwood, if I want to go to Calgary, which is kind of the nearest by big city, two and a half hours away, what do I have to? Is an electric car feasible for me? And going through this decision and risk and like, okay, I've got two small children. If I jump into an electric car with them, what are the odds that I make it to this location or this location? And, you know, that is part of the acquisition of assets is that risk-based decision process of, okay, where is, am I just pushing it? Is there a charging station on the way? Is 45 minutes enough to get of charging? Is that, you know, feasible in what you're doing? And, you know, you can look at that whole journey as, and the failure modes that can be introduced in between. And then that conversation changes because as soon as you hit the winter, it's like, okay, yeah, I could get 400 kilometers of range, but now all of a sudden I'm, I'm only getting 200. Now, is it still feasible to purchase that, that electric vehicle? And yeah, yeah. And, that's a massive purchase decision. <laughs> and then you look at uh, countries like Norway, which have very similar conditions. They in fact are arguably worse because they're cold and humid um and you see how they've rolled out something and and managed that risk but it obviously took a big investment from their government to set up the charging stations and things along the way to um to account for that but it's that investment into managing the risk which is really important and you know when we're when we're talking about cold weather and it's a secondary thought but in terms of criticality it's in every single conversation Uh, We, I was working with one plant and it was a chemical facility and brand new, looks great. It was designed out of Texas and they had all this piping running outside (laughs) and they commissioned it, started it up in the summer, no heat tracing. Whereas you look at every other chemical manufacturing plant in Alberta and it's, there's no pipes outside. It's all closed and everything's inside except for this one. (laughs) And uh, so it's, like that operating context and those failure modes of which failure modes you're going to see because it still is a failure mode like freezing in Arizona. It still hits. But what's the risk of that happening? Pretty marginal. Well, it's not a dominant failure mode because and we, we call them dominant failure modes because yeah. the operating context, while that failure mode can exist, it doesn't surface very often. So you're absolutely right. If, if something isn't a dominant failure mode, you sort of implied it by saying that the risk isn't really high. For us, it was actually the opposite. In fact, we've used this example quite often because it was firsthand experience. So driving across the desert, let's say you want to go to California from here and it's January, no problem at all, right? And there's a number of things that would happen when the kids were younger. What's the entertainment system like? Because driver comfort is, uh, is impacted by the degree of yelling going on in the back. So, and just driver distractions. But... We did this trip, you do this trip in August, and there is at least four and a half, five hours across an extremely hot desert. When that air conditioner breaks, that's actually very, very critical. It's not as critical as the tires or the fuel system, but it is, it's up there. Well, it broke on us one time and it was four hours of the hot, 115 degrees, four hours of wind, just like a hairdryer blowing at you like that. It was horrible, absolutely horrible. So, you know, the, the time of year actually can change what um, what assets, even within a portfolio, become critical? Because if you got cooling technology that's required for those summer periods, or you have heating technology that's required for those winter periods, the heat tracing is a massively, or, or the enclosures that you're gonna put something in, depending on how you manage the risk, is a very, very critical piece of equipment at times of the year. 
right? Yeah. So, well, unless you're at the North Pole or South Pole, <laughs> I should say, then then it's all year long. So, well, and like you know, I my primary focus is in in mobile equipment and the time of the year. So, like you have your the suspensions on on the big big mining trucks. As you, you look at those, and what affects their reliability the most is the time of the year and the underfoot conditions that it's uh -huh. driving over. Mm -hmm. So if in the spring and you're getting that freeze thaw like you're talking about, so it thaws for a couple hours of the day, trucks trucks run through, and now you got these big mounds of dirt that are just frozen ice blocks that aren't yep. the easiest to clear out. And yep. so that uh, that'll change things a lot. But like, you know, even within Canada, so here in Sparwood where I am, those underfoot conditions are are very different than uh, if you go down to uh, the Okanagan um, where it's a little more arid and stuff. And, you know, mm -hmm. even the winter, they still get the free thaw cycle, but they don't have the same geology the and right. same moisture and everything. Yeah. And so it's quite different. And like it on the surface, you look at these two places and you're like, they're pretty much the same winter temperatures generally will get down to the same range yet their operating context is quite different. Exactly, exactly. And it, you know, it's amazing how many people lose sight of that. So A, you know, you had a bunch of engineers, very smart engineers design a plant from Texas, forgot about the operating context, right? So, you know, there's another thorny one out there and I don't know if you want to get into it and stuff like this, but you know, it's, the notion, of, uh, it's the notion of condition. And this is the part that really sort of, you know, it sort of spins me up a little bit as well. People say, oh, well, my acid condition is, is well, let's pick a scale one to five, right? And, and five is, is bad and one is great. So brand new acid's a one, right? So it slides down the scale. Eventually you could have five and let's say five is broken, but someone will go out and they'll, they'll do a condition assessment. And they'll just say, well, my acid's in a condition three. Well, what does that actually mean? Does that actually impact the rate at which that acid is going to fail? It might not, because if you're looking at coatings, well, it might take two years for a coating to completely, you know, pose a problem where you're going to get breakthrough down to the down to the metal, or you're going to get um, enough uh, pitting and stuff that the metal is 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 a, is a weak point. You could get a leakage depending on the pressures. Whereas, if you're looking at a rotating piece of equipment, and it's a bearing or it's a shaft, right? And if you have a three, well, you know, you only might have a month left before that sucker is not going to work anymore because you're headed to failure. Right. So it depends on the rate at which the, what component is actually being affected and the rate at which that component can degrade. We call that like a failure horizon. Um, or I should say a, um, a, a, a we don't want to confuse it with it's, it's a rate at which something can fail, not how often it fails. Um, it's almost, we translate it, into a failure horizon. So where it's like it almost sounds to, like a remaining useful life. Uh, almost, well, it is and it isn't. From an asset management perspective, remaining useful life really is part of an asset's life, its asset's life cycle. And remaining useful life is often related to the company that owns that asset. I'll give you an example. You have a, a motor with a particular degree of efficiency in California. Once you hit, I believe it's 91% efficiency or less than that, you can't use it in California anymore. You, you send it to Arizona, we'll use it. You know, the thing is, is it has no remaining useful life to a Californian because of their efficiency requirements. But in Arizona or some other state or in Canada, it might still work. Then you say, oh, okay, well, this asset's no good for me. So you transfer ownership. So an asset's useful life really is about how long that asset can actually continue to do something of value. What I'm talking about in this particular context is your mean time to failure in some ways, right? So the idea that Condition isn't necessarily 
a direct correlation between what I, when I'm going to fail and I'm still versus oh, I'm still I'm still useful. And when I say that is, is that because an asset's made up of so many components, each of those components has a degree to which they impact the asset's performance. Each of those components have a rate at which they will degrade based on the context, right? So we always tell our you know, folks that we talk to, be really, really careful how you use condition information because you don't want to overmanage an asset. You certainly don't want to undermanage or miss a critical asset's outage and get caught by surprise. So we're always saying, well, what do you mean by context? Which components are we talking about? How does that context or that, that condition affect the asset's performance? That's what, I, that's what I mean by that. Yeah, yeah, that's... Sorry, a li little bit of a long-winded approach. I, I apologize. <laughs> but, I think good, I... but I think there's an important distinction between um, as an asset's useful life versus an asset's uh, operating before it hits failure. So the meantime between failure kind of yep. stuff. So right, an asset's performance period. Um, and then, you know, we look at sawtooth curves a lot. So in fact, our, our, soft, our software captures all this information, allows us to look at sawtooth curves and say, hey, this asset's starting to get too expensive to own because your, your performance period is shrinking too much. So you're up and down too much and you're not able to get the performance back to where you want it to be. So that curve starts declining, right? And it's mm -hmm. actually a very, very important aspect. And each individual component uh, has a sawtooth curve as well, right? So because a bearing and a shaft is going to have a different set of rate of failure as the coating, or you got a volute uh, in a pump and you're pushing sandy stuff, or you know, and that's going to erode things away. Or if you've got decent coatings and you're pushing acid or caustic, eh, it might yeah. last longer, right? So yeah, so like you're is and correct me if I'm wrong, it's it's the P to F curve that we're really talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The different rates at which the P to F curve yeah. is going to degrade. Um, and, go ahead. Yeah, and so you know, each one of those has its failure modes, and or each one of those, each failure mode, I guess, is represented by that. Correct. Um, yeah. And then, based on your operating conditions, is is the rate that it is how long or short that curve is. Correct. How steep it falls off, right? Yeah. And and when you started detecting it. How far down the curve are you, mm -hmm. right? So you know if you're not using very sophisticated uh, sensors, or you're you know going out doing spot checks. I don't want to say at random, but you know, not not too often. Well, you might actually be pretty far down the curve, and then you don't have a lot of time, right? Yeah. It, so then you have to know how important that asset is. Do I need to act now, or do I have time? Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you that's know, it's, it's not and it's not for the faint at heart in some ways. There's a lot of really no. cool stuff. To talk about there's a lot of really cool things to give consideration to and no facility no no even within the same company it's not always quite the same no and it's it's hard to calculate it's hard to understand like when is um where's that p where's that f you the f is pretty obvious <laughs> it stopped yeah. functioning it, it's you've got your functional failure now yeah what and then the other question too in different industries is, you know, what's a reasonable time frame for lead time to know? Um, is one week enough time to turn that from a reactive to a proactive thing? Depends well, on like your industry. What is, what is is big big enough? Yeah, and <laughs> or is is three months? Like I, I've seen it too, where you know they've got three months notice, and they're like, that's great. We plan two weeks out. 
if it's outside of that, don't let us know. Right. Um, and so it's, again, what is important to understand? What, it, what are you going to get that value out of? If, you know, uh, it, you know, for me, it's a lot of it is just in time is, okay, let's get it out of there before it deviates from our performance just before it does. And how do you get as close to that as possible? Or is there even value getting, getting it close to that point? Like, um, if you replace it a week earlier or not, is, is there value in there? I see a lot of people spend so much effort and time and money detecting a failure to just detect it a few days earlier from what they currently do. And then, but those few days, it didn't end up making a difference. It's not long enough. So how yeah. do you move that curve yeah. and how do you, how do you so adjust that? There, there's a, there's a lot of things I think that go into that thing. So uh, if you look at the, an overall asset portfolio, there are some assets you got to know as early as possible. So sometimes it's worth the added investment to understand, let's say using, I don't know, I'm picking some of the shock pulse or you know, certain things where you're way up the early part of the P to F curve. Generally speaking, if you're drive, trying to drive someone to action, one of the things we did is, is we basically suggest, we have a library of, of failure curves in, in our software for all the different types of assets that, that we've got um, in there. And what we say is like, look, if, if a failure curve is, I'm gonna pick a time period here, three months, in general, assuming you've picked it up somewhere within a reasonable amount of time, uh, somewhere along that P to F curve, about a month. So a third of what the normal P to F curve, earliest detection to failure, because you'll probably get it before it actually fails. The question is, is, is it an asset that should run to failure or can run to failure versus one that, you know, okay, it's not really great if it fails versus, oh, no, 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 this cannot go out without plan, right? So if something cannot go out without a plan because it's that critical, you probably need to intervene on that asset enough to never let it go down outside of the window that you can actually take the asset out of commission, like a turnaround or something like that. And in that case, it's worth the investment to understand what's happening with that asset ahead of time, possibly even using surrogate information and maybe even you know deciding to look at AI. That's actually one of the things, we've taken things about as far as we can on rules-based, we're looking at now integrating with AI. On the other side of the scale, you've got assets that'll run to failure, right? And so if you know, you're spending gobs of money and it didn't make any difference about the asset failure. Well, you probably need to rethink uh, either how to manage that risk by either some redundancy or a different test uh, sensing approach or surrogate information or um, figure some other way out of mitigating that risk. Maybe part of the problem is, is that they didn't do anything. You know, some people get information, like you said, they got the information and they just didn't do anything with it. So there has to be some discipline to say, hey, when a, when a, when a work order pops up, we got to do it. And if a work order isn't going to get done, um, depending on the assets, I don't want to say criticality at this point, depending on the risk posed by that asset to the business, you get some flexibility about picking it up within some window. But if you're not going to pick it up, then, it, then it's either not a, a risk posing asset, or you don't care about your business, or you've had other priorities that somebody's overwritten. There's really good natured people who really want to do the right thing. And sometimes corporate gets in the way. But that's, that's, that's been our experience at times. And we, we, we yeah. try to give the argument for the guys in the field who, you know, kind of know what the right thing to do is, is we kind of try and get the corporate guys to understand that and vice versa. They've yeah. got to have some alignment, you know? Well, and, you know, to that point, like, 
nobody goes to work to do a bad job. It doesn't matter right. if you're you're the manager or, or the technician or or the operator. Absolutely. Everybody is there making the best decisions they can on the day yep. to do the job. Now, where I think we miss a lot of, so you go through the RCM process, you you pick out your failure modes or you decide which ones you can control through different methods, and then you still have your failures. Or a lot of us is you've inherited the facility. There is yep. no RCM and you're just basing the new things you develop off of what failures you see. Yep. But if you don't have that disciplined process um, to review those failures and you know, I know a lot of people are, they're, they're overwhelmed with the number yeah. of failures. Yeah. And it's, it's, if we were to do an RCA on everything, we wouldn't get anything done because there's yeah. just too many. And so that risk and criticality and let's value them. And you don't necessarily want to, I think it's more important to value the downtime or even uh, group some of the failures together and do, do an RCA on that. Because like you said, if you have if you're putting in sensors and you're still getting failures, well, then maybe the problem isn't the sensors. Let's, if you do it could an be RCA, a process related, it could be a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. Let, let me throw another bomb out. <laughs> so this is a discussion that we used to have when we were uh, uh, back at uh, one of my former employees at, at Veolia. So a group of us were getting together who, you know, either ran the, some of the business or were um, head of asset management and stuff. So here's something that, to toss out. And, and I've, I've lived this. This is, this is a very real life question that can put ice run through, make ice run through your veins. So it's let you have X amount of time to get stuff done. And you've got, let's let's say you've got $10 of need and you got $1 in resources. What are you going to spend that, that money on? What are you going to, where where are you going to find your efforts? Right. And let's say you've got three times as much work as you have staff and time for. And everyone always says, well, you got to get it all done. Right. Well, you can't keep shotgunning it. So here's the, here's the, here's the bomb. If you actually ranked your assets by criticality and managed to figure out by just by looking at historical, you don't even have to put equations against it. Just look at historical information and see how often something failed. And we actually say, look at the systems that they're a part of. Look at that and say, okay, now I got an idea about my risk. If you cut the plant off at the halfway mark and say, okay, 50% of my assets, let's say 50% of the assets, they're below the 50% risk line, whatever the scale is, right? And the the top half of the asset portfolio poses the, the, all, most of the risk. In other words, the, the risk from 50% up to 100%. Look after those assets. Forget the rest. A, you'll, you'll know where to focus, and your business will probably run better. And, I, and the reason why I say that is because is every time you spend time focusing on an asset that isn't posing a lot of risk, that isn't that important, and that won't pose a risk in the future. So in other words, it's criticality number is actually relatively low and the risk is low. Every time you do that, you're wasting effort. Yeah, and I, I agree, I fully agree. But no one, I've never met anybody who runs a business who's willing to basically say, half my assets I'm not gonna worry about. I'm not even gonna send anybody out there for, I'm only gonna look at the top risk poor, uh, risk ranking of my assets. <laughs> so I, I agree, but I also, on one, one hand, there's still that base set of maintenance tasks that are defined that we can't yeah. let go. Why? And Well, uh, you know, I guess that's dependent on per, per the facility, but is it like if you already have that work defined and sending a technician is out and part of plan, plan maintenance yeah. where, you know, is it 
but why? To what end? Right? I just, I, you know, we just are we not going to change the oil? <laughs> you know, the acid isn't that important. I don't know. I didn't say don't go do an oil change. I said the acid isn't important. Yeah. Relatively yeah. speaking. You know, I only can do, let's say, 40 hours of work a, a week. Yeah. For, you know, let's say I take two weeks vacation. Okay. So there's 50 weeks a year, 40 yeah. hours a week. Well, and if I've got 80 hours worth of assets to take a look at, which, where am I going to put my 40 hours? Yeah. See, like the perspective I take on it is um, <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> like sending a technician out. That's a hard, hard one for me to hard one to wrap my head around how to effectively do that. Uh, but when you're looking at like your engineering and development time, and probably because I'm in this space myself is, yep. okay, so um, you've got your 50% of critical assets. Well, mm -hmm. let's focus your engineering and maintenance and reliability uh, backend efforts on those ones. Mm -hmm. Now, where I find that a lot of the, that group of people gets distracted is you get those day-to-day -day failures and you know you have those pumps that fail exactly plant for and then that work starts to get pushed in yeah like that's the work that i want to say and you put your foot down draw a line in the sand or stone or whatever it is and say look sorry here is my plan that can go on the bad actor list for the the next run um but this is my plan for the next six months i need these six months to get these things over the line because if i fix these things well five of those other failure modes that we saw they're going to go away too because we're fixing these systems and processes that are part of this other failure mode and main it's inherent in maintenance we are maintenance people are firefighters every organization uh, or most of them i shouldn't say everyone gets rewarded on getting equipment up quickly and getting things done quickly instead of necessarily getting them resolved fully because you don't see the benefits of being it resolved fully for sometimes three, four, five, maybe longer years. Um, and yep. you're not in that job. You may not be in that job. You might not even be at that company to see that again. Yep. But what you, you can feel and it's tangible is what you can fix today. And it is yep. a huge paradigm, shi paradigm shift to, to move to that next space. Absolutely. And um, in fact, you, you've articulated you know, the, 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 the se several things in there that are a problem with almost every organization. One, it's the tyranny of the urgent. Oh, it's a broke, something broke, I have to fix it. Well, if you're spilling water or something all over the place, yeah, you probably, you have to stop it, but I don't know if I have to fix it. So, and there's, the second thing is, is there's an awful lot that goes into the, when we say an asset is critical or it's posing risk, that doesn't just mean process or production. That also means if the corporation values certain things, well, wait a second, we have to fix this particular monitor because I'm required by law to monitor the gases coming out of this stack, you know, uh, every 10 minutes. And if I miss that, I'm going to have a big notice of violation. And because of whatever's going on politically or with the environment or whatever, they're going to shut us down. Well, that little sensor all of a sudden carries a really big stick. So what goes into the notion of what is critical isn't just as simple as, well, it's, you know, for production, it could be a safety related issue. So if you've got something, a way of scaling things that you look at your whole asset portfolio and understand going like X, Y, Z, this is what we believe that has informed our rankings. And we've got all their stuff off stuff there. And maybe you made a mistake, but let's assume you didn't make a mistake. So then you say, okay, cool. I absolutely agree with you. You put a plan in place and that plan needs to be uh, ex executed on because two years from now, you're gonna have an extremely well-run low maintenance cost facility. 
We found that there's usually a two year period of where you're trying to get through the backlog of getting everything looked after, plus all the baloney that keeps breaking along the way that everyone says, oh, you got to look after this right now. There's a, there's a third component to it that is, that is the bane of a lot of people's existence. Somebody high enough up says, no, I want you to fix X. And everybody below that person knows it isn't that important or it isn't as important as you think it is because there's this long laundry list of more important things out there, but somebody got their bee in a bonnet and they've basically said, I want you to fix something. So that's part of this thing about alignment that the corporate folks need to understand and need to trust the folks at the field level that they're actually looking after their interests, that they're actually looking after the stuff that's most important. And so you're, you're, you're absolutely right. You get rewarded for saving the day and, uh, and it's hard to get rewarded two or three years down the road because how often do you hear of somebody saying, you know what, you know, three years ago, this was, was kind of awful. And, and, you know, we have nothing going wrong right now and that's awesome. And uh, we're gonna reward somebody who worked on this facility three years ago you have to have some very, very tuned in management to, to do that. There is a video out. I'm sure some of you, you've seen it or in some of the blisters have seen it. It was put out by um, John Oliver. It was about asset management and it had a, a list of stars in it. And it was a movie that a fake you know, movie trailer that they put out basically saying a movie in which nothing happens because real asset management, the net result should be nothing catastrophic happens nothing you know nothing dramatic happens because you're looking after the stuff the way you're supposed yeah. to look after right yeah you know, if, if we were allowed to look after our industry our municipal operations the way most of us want to look after our vehicles we might be in a better position yeah and i fully agree and i i love everything you just said and i would love to keep talking about it more <laughs> Uh, but we are running out of time, uh, so I want to make sure that you get an opportunity to, uh, um, before we close out, um, is there anything like Mentor APM, uh, your company, I'll, I'll be sure to put that in the links, but is there any, you know, how can people find you or do you have any upcoming presentations, conferences or anything else that, uh, um, that you want to let people know so they can get more of, uh, uh, more of Tacoma Zach? <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure. Actually, yeah. You know, it's it's at mentorapm.com. So it's M-E-N-T-O-R-A-P-M, all one word. So Mentor Asset Performance Management. That's what the acronym APM stands for. Uh, .com. Uh, we have a number of videos on there too that we've done about criticality analysis and about asset management, et cetera. We just did uh, one with the Mobius Institute uh, where, uh, again, we talked about, you know, a similar set of topics. Um, there's a book, Criticality Analysis Made Simple, that you can pick up on Amazon. Um, and, you know, check us out as far as the software is concerned. We really, we really went to ourselves, the customers, our business experience and said, what do we need to not only meet, you know, promises, but to do more than the Maximos and the Oracles and all the other commercial off-the-shelf software out there, but that really deals with the nitty-gritty about how to actually manage assets so that you can actually do asset management. Um, that's us. So give it, a, give it a check out. Look at a couple of modules. We've got a, a new module coming out. There's criticality analysis in there. So that's, that's really easy to do. Hierarchy builder. So you can easily build, you know, different versions of hierarchies and all that. And I realize I'm, I'm, I'm getting into a sales pitch here. So I want to be careful. But uh, <laughs> oh, the coolest thing is, I'll tell you, on this very issue that you and I were just talking about, this is actually something we went to a couple of customers on. And this has been a passion of mine to build. So we built it. And it's basically a load leveling resource leveling uh, module. So it looks at, you can, you can sort your entire asset portfolio based on criticality, risk, condition, or priority, whatever gut feel is. And it will 
It will prioritize all your PMs and all your work orders according to those things and level them out based on the staff resources you have, including how efficient staff is and availability and all that sort of stuff. And it gives you a five-year window to see, hey, I think I need more people to get all this stuff done. Or Mr. Management, you know, you want me to look after my whole asset portfolio? I'm sorry, I only got enough resources to look after the top 25%. You want more? You got to give me more people. <laughs> uh, those are always the most fun conversations. Oh, but, yeah. Oh, they are. Well, thanks, Tacoma. Really appreciate you coming on. And uh, yeah. To quote your slogan, uh, we'll keep kicking asset management. Um, <laughs> yes, we are all kicking asset management. We're all, we're all killing it. I think actually, I think it's getting better and better as the years have gone by and as uh, more information's out there, people are getting serious about it. So yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much cool. for your time. Well, Steve, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. This has been a lot of fun. And I, you know, like I said, if we had four hours, I'd go for more. <laughs>